Starcourt Study Hall contains spoilers for seasons one through four of Stranger Things and for Stranger Things The First Shadow. This episode may also contain graphic content and language not suitable for all listeners. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts unless otherwise stated, and all content and characters are property of Netflix and the Duffer Brothers. I'm Amanda. I'm Marina. And, and this, this is Starcourt Star Study, Study Hall. doing something that you all thought was your idea but it was actually our idea (laughs) but we can say it was your idea yeah sure actually we're both wrong it was the mind flayers idea he is the boss he is we just do what we're told here that's correct so today on star court study hall we are going to be doing part one of two of our stranger siblings episode This was going to be one. We were going to do all four of our pairs in one episode. And then, you know, we got to to gotten and we were like, nope, that's going to be too long. Or we're going to have to like skimp and we didn't want to have to do that. So no. Today we're going to focus on Will and Jonathan and Nancy and Mike. And next week we're going to talk about Max and Billy and Lucas and Erica. And as usual, we're going to go into this with a few disclaimers. Uh, Number one, I am not a sibling. Don't have that. (laughs) I have people who I think of that way, but I don't biologically have a sibling. Amanda is a sibling. So I am. Yeah. She and I bring different things to this conversation, I think. Mm -hmm. Number two, neither of us are parents. So we would like to mention that we are making observations on parenting choices and not passing judgment. I think it's impossible to know how you'd handle things as a parent unless you're doing it. So we could list a million things that we wouldn't do. But until you're faced with making actual parenting decisions, I just don't know how we can be sure of what we would and wouldn't do. Yes. That being said, I don't, I don't think that uh, that's like a, a totally black and white thing. I think there are some objective moral truths here. Do not abuse your child. Neil Hargrove's behavior in particular... That's not something that we find defendable at all, but we're going to talk about that next week. So, yes. So everything we say here is really just from our experience as former children uh, who have parents. (laughs) Excuse me, a current child. (laughs) Stay at home daughter. Yeah, that's me, except I work. Yep. (laughs) I don't stay at home. (laughs) All right. So the way that we are going to split up this episode is that... We are going to first talk about our first impressions of our sibling pair that we have been assigned, and then we're going to go season by season, talking about the trajectory of each of the pairs and kind of how it relates to the plot of the show and how it changes over time. So the pair that I've been assigned by our boss, the Mind Flayer, (laughs) is Will and Jonathan. So we're going to talk about Will and Jonathan and what my first impressions of their sibling dynamic was. So I just want to make a note here. This is kind of hard 
due to William being like indisposed for most of season one. <laughs> He's Ooh. more of like an an abstract concept <laughs> in season one. <laughs> So he is an idea. He is. He's an idea in season one. So it'll be a little tricky, but we're going to do our best. So here's my top three first impressions of the dynamic between these two. So first, I'm going to say parentification in big, bold letters. This is something we've definitely spoken about extensively, but this is unfortunately a relationship dynamic that Joyce kind of perpetuates. At least that's what we see in the beginning. And it kind of goes on and off throughout our seasons. Jonathan also feels very responsible and guilty when Will goes missing, even though he was literally working late to support the family. So yeah, this is it's a lot of Jonathan being placed in this parent role over Will. Another first impression that I had of these two as a pair is that they're very united. In the flashbacks during season one, we see Jonathan and Will sticking together throughout all the nonsense with Lonnie. And I think that the Byers family in general is really into being a united front and maybe a little codependent. But we will talk about that. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. There's a a lot of interesting family dynamics I've uncovered in this research. (laughs) And finally, I'd say my last first impression is that they're just caring and empathetic. Jonathan is very, very devoted to saving Will throughout season one, and it's clear that he genuinely cares about his brother. When Will is finally saved, Will immediately worries when he sees Jonathan's hand wrapped up. Mm, True. And like, I just always think of that first interaction between them, really, in the whole season, and like, that's what it is. Their first interaction of season one is in the last chapter. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of weird things like that that I noticed throughout this. Same. (laughs) You're like, these two haven't interacted in seven chapters. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. (laughs) I appreciate the point that you made about how Jonathan was working late to support the family, but also get shit from Joyce for not Mm -hmm. being there. And it really just like drives home the fact and we've talked about this before that jonathan is very much joyce's partner less Mm -hmm. her son in a lot of ways for nancy and mike's first impressions i also chose three words very different from yours (laughs) so my first word was uninvolved okay Uh, Mike and Nancy are both at the foreground of season one, but they have very few interactions. However, in contrast to the rest of the series, I would say they share the most interactions in season one. So that just goes to show how little they interact in seasons two, three, and four. If even in season one, they barely interact. Yeah. And not even so much that they don't interact, but they don't wonder where the other is there's like very little of that thinking of each other unless they're like in in each other's immediate vicinity and even then it's it's like you would never know that these two are um related so uninvolved my second word was playful in the vanishing of will byers at breakfast when mike pours the pancake syrup all over nancy's eggs she's like gross and then when they're bickering at dinner mike drops steve's name nancy is like you are such a douchebag mike (laughs) they just have this this like this playful teasing dynamic when they are together it's very lighthearted. 
they just pick on each other. Even again, this is first impressions, but even at the beginning of season four when or season three, right? When Mike is stealing the change out of Nancy's piggy bank and she's oh, yeah. like, uh, hello, or season two, two. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that they have a playful dynamic. And then my third first impression of Mike and Nancy is that they are particularly in season one parallel leaders. So they are both leading their corresponding charges in season one, but these charges really never intersect. Like we don't see them intersect much at all. So yeah, they're parallel leaders, which I think, you know, this speaks to a similarity between the two of them that never really gets acknowledged by either of them either. So we're going to talk about that too. So those are my three, my three words for Nancy and Mike. Very different. Yes. All right. So let's get into the trajectory of William and Jonathan. Let's start with season one. Okay. So, okay. (laughs) Seems like a good place to start. (laughs) I would think so. So again, disclaimer, uh, Will basically doesn't (laughs) exist in this season. He is more of a concept, like we said. So our first time meeting Jonathan, we see him in his favorite spot, cooking breakfast, of course. And I think this gives us an accurate first impression. And then throughout the season, we see his family dynamics start to shift a few times, but one thing remains consistent, his dedication to his brother. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that this is rooted deeply in guilt, Hmm. I think. So Jonathan indicated within the first chapter that he feels that it was his responsibility that Will went missing due to working late that night, which, like we said earlier, Joyce then chastises him for. That definitely does not help with the parentification problem. So according to, here we go. Yeah, I have my sources. I have my sources. (laughs) According to parents.com. Parents.com. Yes, parents.com, much like sheepinfo.com and all the other. Oh, I'm sorry, sheepinfo.org. Parents.com. Parentified kids learn their own feelings and needs are threats. Hmm. So that's a theme that's going to keep going. I just thought I'd bring it in here right out of the gate. Okay. (laughs) So Jonathan, out the gate. Oh, yeah. So Jonathan's dedication to Will is shown through Jonathan helping his mom any way he can. In Vanishing of Will Byers, we see him working with Joyce to help make the missing posters. He even skips school to put them up. It seems like Jonathan skips school all the time, though. So I don't know, like, how much of a sacrifice that is. That's also weird. Okay, right? Right? also weird i didn't even touch upon that but yes jonathan seems to skip school all the time and nobody seems to give a shit it just feels like he doesn't think he he deserves it or something yeah right like Like it's not not... worth investing in himself oh that's so true and then we see that too in season four when he's like decided not to even try for Mm -hmm. emerson so in weirdo on maple street jonathan goes to confront lonnie and look for will he does this even when hopper told him not to in the scene where he's driving he's listening to should i stay or should i go and we first kind of understand the significance of this because we see the flashbacks of jonathan showing will the song while joyce and lonnie are arguing outside the room and so they've kind of built this like emotional connection with this song according to psychology today a trauma bond is an attachment formed between two people who unconsciously bond to each other based on shared trauma. That's all. I understood trauma bonding to be more of like, I mean, I guess, I guess it can be both people who have shared the trauma 
and a, and also a bond between one person inflicting the trauma and the other person on the receiving end of the trauma. Yes. When I was looking up trauma bonding, I was finding both. Okay. Both of those scenarios. So it's either you've experienced a trauma with somebody or someone is inflicting trauma upon you and you create this like abusive codependent relationship, which I'm sure we will get into in our next sibling episode. Yeah. So the point being here that Will and Jonathan are trauma bonded. Yes. I okay. I think I think that starts to become more and more evident throughout our seasons. So then in the next chapter, Holly Jolly. Interestingly, it seems that as Joyce becomes more connected to Will, she isolates herself from Jonathan. Very true. Right? So like she starts to be able to communicate with him through the lights. Everybody else thinks she's lost it. Including Jonathan. Including Jonathan, yes. So it ends up kind of driving Jonathan away from her. And then at the end of this chapter, quote unquote, Will's body is found and Jonathan and Joyce have their embrace to heroes in the middle of the road. You'll notice that Joyce comes up a lot in the relationship between Jonathan and Will. It's kind of impossible to leave her out of it. Yeah. Right? Very true. Yes. Like she's extremely involved with these two. And then in, in the body... Joyce really starts to unravel, at least in Jonathan's eyes. I mean, she's not. She's she's raveling, actually. Sure. But their dedication to Will starts to, well, it continues, but it starts to branch in like two different directions. So Joyce is in like the straight up denial direction, refusing to pursue funeral, right, quote unquote, refusing to pursue funeral plans and even refusing to identify the body as her son. Jonathan, in his dedication to his brother, views this as a betrayal, I think. Right. He argues with Joyce on the street about being present for Will in any way that they can. And I feel like this argument, like now that I'm kind of viewing it in this different lens, came from both Jonathan's anger and sadness from losing Will, but also the resentment of Joyce not being able to parent either of them in this moment. Yeah. And I also think like you're putting your son in the position to be the level-headed one when as roles would normally be defined, Jonathan should be kind of the one now who's publicly breaking down, Joyce maintaining strength, breaking mm-hmm. down behind closed doors. Like, I think that's the dynamic that is sort of expected to exist. Yes, I would say so. Which, like, it's no it's no fault of Joyce's no. at this point because she is right. She um, is. But it's, it's really isolating her other son. Then in The Flea and the Acrobat, we learn a little bit more about Jonathan and Will's childhood with Lonnie. They have this confrontation in the beginning of the chapter, Jonathan and Lonnie, where Jonathan confronts him and he tries to kick him out of the house. It's very clear how protective of his brother and his mom he is. And I didn't mention this in the earlier chapter when Jonathan goes to Lonnie's house to look for Will, but Jonathan and Lonnie have this moment of physical violence between them. Yeah, where Lonnie, like pushes Jonathan up against a wall. Jonathan pushes him back. He says, you've gotten stronger, which indicates that this has happened before. So we also need to consider the fact that Jonathan and most likely Will were physically abused at some point in their childhoods. So yeah, they have this confrontation. Again, it gets physical. It's very clear he wants to protect his mom and his brother. Um, He also tells Nancy the story of how Lonnie made him shoot a rabbit while he cried. Yeah, I'm wondering if too... In addition to everything you said, part of this conflict between Jonathan and Lonnie is Jonathan like, sorry, dude, this role is filled in this house. Yes, 100%. Yeah, he's the man of the house now. No room for you. Yeah. 
In the monster, things get wild. Jonathan sleeps in Nancy's bed. He beats the shit out of Steve. He goes to jail. It's the trauma sleepover incorporated. Yes, the trauma sleepover. We have definitely discussed this before, but it feels like Jonathan's rage that he takes out on Steve is kind of coming from a lot of places. Yes. Of course, it's in defense of Nancy, but it's also a little bit in defense of the Byers family, I think. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking shit. I read that as they were taking a shit. (laughs) And I was like, they were? And then in the next sentence, it says everyone finally converges in the bathtub. (laughs) All those. What did we talk about the men in the bathtub? Oh, yeah. Oh, the bad men in the bathtub. The bad men in the bathtub. (laughs) So, yes. Then in the next chapter, the bathtub... Everyone finally comes together right in there in the bathtub. Jonathan gets the idea to use Will's supercom to find the rest of the kids. And this little detail to me says that not only is he close enough to Will to know that that's how he and his friends communicate, but he knows where to find it. Yeah. Right under the bed. He knows where it is. And now it's Jonathan's time to shine here in the Upside Down. He and Nancy leave. They just leave the kids to fend for themselves at the middle school. Bye. At this point, based on what we know about Jonathan... We don't know him to be the fighting type, but for his brother, he will definitely fight an interdimensional creature with a nail bat of his own creation. And he also slits open his own palm just to draw enough blood for the Demogorgon. And I yeah. love my sister, but damn, I, I would pick a different surface to cut open. But anyway, Jonathan and Nancy and Steve's, of course, efforts end up buying Hopper and Joyce enough time to save Will. Yeah. So Jonathan ends up kind of inadvertently saving his brother's life, I think. Right? In a weird way. Yeah. It was like you kind of said, there's this convergence that happens and it all amounts to saving Will. Yes. So once Will is back with us and he's in his hospital bed, we see Jonathan and Will's literal first face-to-face interaction of the season. That is something that I don't think you notice unless you're looking at it like this. Yes. Right? How wild is that? Like this whole season is like Jonathan's wild goose chase to save his little brother who he loves so much we never even see them interact i know so like i said earlier will sees jonathan's bandaged hand he asks him if he's okay which makes jonathan laugh because like are you kidding me yeah what does he say (laughs) he's like you're worried about me right now yeah yes which like to me that just speaks to their relationship it gives us the confirmation i think that we needed that Jonathan's dedication to his brother throughout the season was very genuine. Yeah. It was motivated by pure love and care for Will and nothing else. That like he had no ulterior motives, and this interaction makes that very clear. Jonathan gives Will a basket of items, including a new mixtape that he made for him. Okay, love language. <laughs> Gift giving. <laughs> we love that. And then we do see a little bit more of Jonathan and Will's interactions at the end of this chapter. Jonathan picks up Will from the Wheeler's basement and he kind (laughs) of jokes around with the kids that it smells like farts down there. And Jonathan lets Will open his Christmas present from Nancy and Steve, which is very sweet. And then at home, Jonathan records everything during the buyer's Christmas dinner. And this always just told me that Jonathan was never going to take a moment for granted again. No. And like Jonathan is so sacrificial particularly in season one. And it's like tiny things too. Like I even think about, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice really, but the sacrifice of letting Will open the Christmas present from Nancy, Mm -hmm. like it's tiny, but it is. It's like, here, you have this moment, Will. Like I don't need it, you know? And like as much as Jonathan probably would have actually liked to revel in that moment of receiving a gift from who he thinks is a girl that he might love. He's Mm -hmm. like, you know what? No. Yeah. 
Like, I want my little brother to experience as much joy as humanly possible. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So that's season one between those two. Oof. All right. Let's talk Nancy and Will. Nope. Nope. Nancy and Mike in season (laughs) one. For simplicity purposes, I am omitting Holly from this analysis. I am so sorry, Ms. Jolly, but you are not part of this. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Miss Holly Jolly. That's okay. One of the first things that I would like to point out in relation to Nancy and Mike is that they are established alongside Jonathan and Will. So we're put in this position to draw lots of comparisons between these two pairs. I have a question for the group, okay? And by the group, I mean you. Thank you. Do you think Nancy would have responded to Mike's disappearance in the same way that Jonathan responded to Will's? No, not at all. (laughs) She would have been like, okay, can I go to Steve's? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not um, at all. Yeah, um, I was thinking about that. And like, I, I think this does come down probably to... The fact that Nancy just simply does not feel responsible for Mike in the same way that Jonathan feels responsible for Will. So true. I do think Mike and Nancy can sort of be a foil to Jonathan and Will because while I think Nancy's and Mike's dynamic is healthier in some ways, I think it's also missing a lot. Mm -hmm. So I do struggle personally a bit with labeling Mike or Nancy as emotionally neglected by Ted and Karen. I think we do have moments where we see Karen in particular support her kids in their moments of need. So I think that that's another way in which Mike and Nancy differ a lot from Jonathan and Will. Because Joyce is, you know, most oftentimes doing her absolute best. And she is in a situation where she is kind of, she's a single parent, but she's got Jonathan as a partner in a lot of this as a wild as Karen and Ted's relationship is at the end of the day they do maintain an adult partnership that uh Joyce just does not have Mm -hmm. so I wanted to uh make mention of that I also think Nancy never steps in as a parent figure even in situations when it seems like it would be logical for her to do that, which tells me one of two things. Uh, She either has the instinct and rejects it, or she doesn't have the instinct at all. Mm -hmm. So I think that would probably come down to like the type of relationship that Karen and Ted foster between their children. And even if you have parents who foster a very involved sibling dynamic, that also doesn't mean that it's going to flourish. Like I know Mm -hmm. plenty, plenty of parents who foster like a connected relationship between brothers and sisters and sisters and sisters, and it just doesn't take. So it's hard to, it's hard for me to look at Karen and Ted here. They're not as involved as far as I'm concerned as Joyce is. Make sense? Yeah, for sure. And there's also the fact that like both of their kids seem to have pretty established lives separately and don't seem to need each other. Right. Yeah. Like, yes, Mike seems pretty content with who he is. Nancy has her friends and her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. She does well in school. Will, on the other hand, is like he seems to struggle. He gets bullied a little more. Mm -hmm. Jonathan seems to get bullied a little more. So they sort of need each other in a different way. Yeah. And there's also like the I didn't even put this down but there's there's just this very subtle detail in the vanishing of will Byers where both families are sitting down to breakfast and it's like who's cooking breakfast in the wheeler household mm-hmm. karen 
right? Mm -hmm. And her children are permitted to sit down and eat the breakfast. In the buyer's household, Jonathan is cooking breakfast. So there's really not many opportunities for Jonathan and Will to sit down and share breakfast with Joyce. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then even in season three, when Joyce is cooking breakfast, Jonathan is late for work. So he's got to go. Right. As I mentioned, Nancy and Mike barely interact with one another in season one, which is wild when you consider the fact that they are dealing with the exact same problem, uh, losing their best friend to an interdimensional monster. A really niche problem, too. Incredibly niche problem. Yeah. We've talked about how hard it is to relate to this stuff. Yeah. (laughs) But I feel like this really emphasizes their uninvolvedness. They could have related to and supported one another, and they just simply didn't. They just did not. And it's not like the DBs can't write a loving sibling relationship because we see one. It exists parallel. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is a choice made between Nancy and Mike. I noticed that Nancy pieces together that something terrible happened to Barb at roughly the same time that Will's body is found in Holly Jolly. It's like they come on the cusp of each other. Yeah. So again, I feel like this is another opportunity for Nancy and Mike to come together. At the end of Holly Jolly, Karen and Nancy are sitting with the Hollands as Mike is coming home from the quarry, distraught. Uh, Nancy watches Karen walk to Mike in the foyer and hug him, but Nancy does not go to hug him. She just stands in the living room and watches this. So weird. It is weird, which is why I go back to that point I made about the instinct. It's not her, like, gut reaction to go to him like that. Mm -hmm. Like, an opportunity for Karen, Mike, and Nancy to embrace presented itself. Your brother is distraught, and you stand there. One thing that stands out to me in The Vanishing of Will Byers in relation to Nancy and Mike is that opening scene... At the Wheelers when Dustin brings her the leftover pizza. And then afterwards, Dustin is like, your sister has a stick up her butt. And his thought is kind of similar to your point about Jonathan with the supercom. Dustin's thought to bring Nancy the pizza and then their subsequent conversation in the garage about Nancy, like once upon a time participating in their D&D campaign, tells me that Nancy used to humor Mike, right? She used to maybe be a little bit involved in their their D&D nonsense. So this feels like they grew apart as they got older, which I think is normal. Yeah. I will say um, they do at least go to Will's funeral together in the Flea and the Acrobat, Nancy and Mike, before Nancy literally travels to the other dimension, okay, that her brother is speculating about at this very moment. Would have been interesting if these two had a conversation in season one. What could have come of Nancy and Mike communicating. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I don't know. I mean, you two are fig- you're you this gang over here is figuring out all these details about the upside down while Nancy is quite literally traveling there. <laughs> and they <laughs> they just don't communicate. She's an experiential learner, okay. Oh my god, you're so right. <laughs> <laughs> so finally in the bathtub, Nancy and Mike hug. When <laughs> what the hell's that? When they meet up at the buyers, and Nancy admits uh, that she was worried about Mike. He kind of just stands there though, like a floppy fish. It's like they've never hugged before, so he doesn't know what to do with his arms. He's like, "What? 
And which just makes me feel like these two do not feel comfortable with emotion and like expressing. I feel like Will and Jonathan were raised to feel and Nancy and Mike were just simply not. Which actually, when I was reading one of the articles that you put the link for about like passive emotional neglect, one of the, the signs of it was a family avoids discussion of any topic that could involve discomfort, conflict, disagreement, or feelings in general. Mm-hmm. Instead, the conversation is generally superficial and impersonal. The children in this family learn how to avoid meaningful conversations. Hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting, too, because as you were saying that, it made me think about, like, Jonathan and, and Will, they know how to express emotions. Unfortunately, they, they learned about it in like a weird way because mm-hmm. I they've I'm sure they've heard tons and tons of fighting. But at the True. same time, Joyce has also like shown them how to have talks that yes. are not about yelling. So like I'm sure they learned in both ways, but in a way, you know, hearing people argue isn't always bad. Like arguments aren't always a bad thing. Right. And it's like I think about while it might have been noisy in the buyer's house because Lonnie and Joyce were arguing, it was probably silent in the Wheeler house because Ted right. and Karen were exchanging no words. Loveless. Yeah. Like, damn, at least Lonnie and, and Joyce had some passion. Right. Like, in that anger that they had for each other, you're only you're only that mad if you actually love somebody, right? Right, right. Like, of course it was silent in the Wheeler house. What, what did Ted and Karen even have to talk about, let alone right. argue? Yeah, so Mike and Nancy see this as an example, mm-hmm. and they they don't know what to say to each other. Like, they don't know how to express affection for one another. This, if I am correct, and I think I might be, is the only time in all four seasons that Nance, Nancy and Mike hug. That's so strange. Yes. And then you mentioned, which I didn't even pick up on in season one, Nancy leaves Mike. Yeah. And this becomes a pattern where Nancy picks up and goes with Jonathan to support Jonathan supporting Will. But Nancy never thinks to support Mike. Yeah. And it's wild. My final point for season one about Nancy and Mike is that I think by the end, they are at a different place in their relationship from the start to the end. They agree to no longer keep secrets from one another. And then they're like, well, you know. Do you have feelings for Elle? No. Do you have feelings for Jonathan? No. You know, then then they immediately turn around and bullshit. Um, But I do think the events of season one brought them closer together or it gave them some trauma to contend with, which forced them to come together a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my season one, Nancy and Mike. All right. Mm. Let's go to season two. Let's talk about Jonathan and Will again. I guess (laughs) just Just so we're clear. I guess we could do that. In Mad Max, Jonathan and Will have a very sweet exchange about what it means to be a freak and why that's not a bad thing. It's not. I love this older brother guidance moment between them. It could have gone one of two ways. Well, maybe several. But it also kind of made me think about Steve and Dustin's interactions later about getting girls to like you. True. Because it's kind of the opposite approach. Steve's approach is like, here's what you can change and, and here are some things that probably don't come naturally to you that you can do to make people like you versus Jonathan's approach where he says, basically, be yourself and the right people will like you. And I appreciate that about Jonathan. 
What a great contrast between Steve and Jonathan. Right? Yeah. And like that says that so much. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that Steve is like a bad guy, but No. But at the end of the day, also, both Steve and Dustin do not have their own siblings that we know of, at least. Right. And so, you know, Steve is just kind of figuring all this out. So I'm not saying that he's a he's a bad guy. He's just trying to figure out how to be a brother. Mm-hmm. And then later that night, Will sees a vision of a gigantic red lightning spider thing in the sky. And he tells nobody because that doesn't seem important. No, that's like a really small detail of life. No. I would leave that out. Yeah, I'd probably forget about it by the morning. I would be scared <laughs> to tell my therapist that. <laughs> Me too. I'd be like, you don't even want to know what I've been seeing. You do not want to know. <laughs> and I don't want you to know. <laughs> I, li- I like the gigantic red lightning spider. <laughs> you know, we don't know who he is yet. So You're right. Who are you? And then in the next chapter, Jonathan drives Will to go trick-or-treating. And Will is kind of over everyone breathing down his neck, of course. And Jonathan, being the supportive big brother that he is, decides to let Will trick-or-treat with his friends unsupervised. Interesting. It not is. the smartest. Not the smartest move in retrospect. Um, he didn't know any better. We can't fault him for that. But also thank goodness he did this because then Jonathan gets to go to the Halloween party and then save Nancy from sleeping in a bathtub that night. So mm. that's pretty good. But yeah, he he lets Will go on his own. And I I'm conflicted about that. Because, like, of course he didn't know that it would really be dangerous, you know? But at the same time, I don't know. He goes against Joyce, and that's kind of out of character for Jonathan. It is. And I, I also think, too, it's like he's trying to balance in this moment what his brother is asking of him. You know, he's like, Mom doesn't trust me. I need you to do that. Yeah. And then Jonathan does. And then it bites him in the ass which sucks because i think what that reinforces for jonathan is that he's still the irresponsible parent here yes yes that's so true i didn't even think about the parallel of that choice to let will go on his own and the consequences of that and then in it's the same thing as season one when he decides to go out and work late and will goes missing it just reinforces to jonathan that he does not deserve to do his own thing he is will's parent and he needs to watch him at all times yes jonathan took a second to go to a party to do something for himself yeah and his brother suffered for it that's yeah i never even like made that connection but it's not jonathan's fault no absolutely not later that night will has another vision of mr sky spider only this time it becomes apparent to his friends around him that something is very wrong And Will ends up confiding in Mike about what he's seeing and that he thinks he might be seeing into the Upside Down. However, he does not let Jonathan or Joyce know. Still, doesn't he let Owens know? Is he he seeing Owens at this point? Yeah, he is seeing Owens at this point, but I think Owens still thinks that what he's seeing is like a flashback. Right. So Will doesn't let anyone know yet that he thinks he can see, like what he's really seeing into the Upside Down, you know? Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Okay, this is where season two gets wild. In the polywog, the brothers spend the whole chapter apart. Jonathan and Nancy sympathize about not being able to move on with their lives. Jonathan worries aloud that Will will never be the same. Because of this shared experience, they, and really it's just Nancy, formulates a plan to get Hawkins Lab to admit their wrongdoing. Meanwhile, Will is dragged along on a journey with Dustin's polywog, whom he is pretty sure is actually from the Upside Down, but he doesn't seem to feel like telling anyone that information. At the end of the chapter, Will tries to confront 
our friend the Mind Flayer, using Bob's advice, which definitely doesn't work, go away. And <laughs> he gets flayed. Okay, bye, Will. Season two was fun with you in it while we had it. So going right back to season one with Will being more of an abstract concept. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a vessel in this yeah. one. <laughs> now he's, a, he's, he's physically here. He's but... present in body, but not in spirit. <laughs> yes. All right. Then Will the Wise... The shadow monster finishes injecting its materials into Will. Thank you to the wiki for that. And the kids find Will unresponsive. And then Will and Jonathan also spend this entire chapter apart. Mm-hmm. From, from here on out, like I said, it's kind of hard to tell like what is Will and what is the Mind Flayer. So bear with us. But Will tells Joyce he doesn't know what happened to him on the field. And we still don't know whether that's true or not. We don't know if he doesn't remember We don't know if he's trying to protect Joyce from knowing the full extent of what happened or whether that's the Mind Flayer talking. So there's like there's three options here. Isn't it weird that when someone appears to be under the influence of the Mind Flayer, they become an incredibly unreliable narrator? Mm hmm. That's interesting. We don't know if we can believe him. But either way. He does not mention anything about his previous visions to Joyce or Jonathan either. True. And speaking of Jonathan, he misses this event entirely. He is just nowhere to be found. He gets back to the house. He sees Will and Joyce sleeping and he just leaves. He does, doesn't he? All right, fam. Well, goodbye. Yeah, he he just bounces. He packs his bag. He leaves. And while we could be like, okay, Jonathan, seriously? I also kind of forgot that Jonathan is also on a quest to help Will in his own way. So he's on a mission to take down the lab. He wants justice for his brother. Yeah. He's also, you know, hanging out with Nancy, whichever one. Yeah. And I struggle, like, also condemning Jonathan for his choices because then how much better are we really? Right. Like, he's choosing to go on his own little journey and that's cool. Yeah. He doesn't need to be there for Will. That's Joyce's job. Correct. He's letting that go for a second. Yes, good for him. And Will is going to just be busy drawing lines and liking it cold for a while. And Jonathan's going to go take down Hawkins' lab with Nancy. We got this. Yes. And then in Dig Dug, Will confides more in Mike about what he sees in his quote-unquote now memories. And he once again chooses not to confide in any family members about this, which I will talk more about later. Family members. Yes. Family members, specifically. Specifically. Yes. Will turns pretty much full Mind Flayer after this chapter. <laughs> full MF. Meanwhile, Jonathan and Nancy share a motel room in their pursuit of Murray, whom they finally make it to in the next day. And then in chapter six, this is where things really get wild. The spy. Will is convulsing and screaming about everything hurting because he's part of the hive mind now. So welcome, my child. And then for the fourth consecutive chapter, Jonathan is nowhere to be found. Well, actually, he, no, he's found. In Murray's spare room, losing his virginity. What is happening? for him. (laughs) What is going on? It is wild. Right. Good for him. Like, but it's just so strange seeing the juxtaposition of what's happening to Will versus Mm. John. Let's talk about injecting materials. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Get out of here. So sorry. (laughs) I I don't know. But at the same time, right, it's kind of nice to watch Jonathan imagining that his life is normal. It is. And also, I think, too, by what is it? By Dig Dug, there is another supplement in the buyer's household for Jonathan. And it's Mike. Mm-hmm. Mike is just vibing there. Yeah, he just he lives is, there now. Yeah, he's the one who Will tells about his now memories, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So it's weird how Mike kind of steps in and is like, Jonathan's missing, but we've replaced him with Mike in a weird That's way. That's funny. Yeah, he becomes like a proxy brother. He does. Yeah. And then we don't talk about chapter seven, and luckily it does not include either of the buyer's brothers. Just Ironically, it's about a sibling relationship, yes. and we're just not going to talk about it. <laughs> not at all. It's literally named The Lost Sister. And we're like, okay, skipping that one. Okay, never mind on that. <laughs> Ignore that. Um, and then by chapter eight, the mind flayer, Jonathan and Nancy are finally back in Hawkins and they regroup with the rest of the gang. I watched this like five second scene like five times and cried every single time. Once Jonathan finally shows up at the house and he understands what's going on, he is kneeling down on the floor next to Will, who is unconscious on the couch. And he is crying and saying he's sorry. And he says that he's sorry he wasn't there. I should have been there. And Nancy is comforting him. Oh, my God. It is tragic. Like, watching the way that he reacts once he realizes that the one time this man went out on his own and did something for himself, mm -hmm. his brother ends up in a damn coma. Okay. And also, the one time that Nancy went out and did something for herself, her best friend dies to the Demogorgon. Not only that. Nancy had sex yes. and her best friend <laughs> succumbed to the Demogorgon. Yeah. Jonathan had sex and his mm -hmm. brother is possessed by the mind flare. Yeah. Stop having sex. Everyone stop it. Moral <laughs> of the story. Don't have sex because also, you will get <laughs> chlamydia and die. And die. <laughs> also, like, the world is falling apart. So please don't make any more people right now. Okay. <laughs> valid don't like there's there's an interdimensional creature destroying our town please don't do that just our town makes it sound so insignificant i know <laughs> okay so move <laughs> it's like like you know like when there's an earthquake just move easy anyway anyway so in the shed after they tie will up uh why am i tied up 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 <laughs> over and over again <laughs> uh, why am i tied up <laughs> but jonathan is trying to get through to will by tearfully telling him about the day that they built castle buyers <laughs> and also that their dad left which is this like a really strange way to, to wake funny. up your brother <laughs> but i love this scene there's no music or anything it's just silence and and the brothers like connecting like they're just looking each other in the eyes and I think that it tells us a lot about the relationship that they had before we met them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jonathan has always clearly looked out for Will. He's done everything he can to make him feel happy and safe. And even just the concept of Castle Byers being born out of shared trauma between these boys is so significant, especially in season three when Castle Byers shows up again and is promptly removed. Castle Byers is so symbolic. It's it like is. it's a retreat right it's innocence it's so just that little stick house in the yeah. woods and it's it's a refuge it's where will hides when he's in the upside down like yep it is such like i have chills thinking about castle buyers <laughs> like i don't even know what's wrong it's just <laughs> why are you like this i don't know it's like very embarrassing same good thing we have people on the internet to validate us <laughs> anyway um time to get this thing out of my son Please don't say that again. <laughs> <laughs> Put that thing back where it came from or so help me. No, we're not putting it back. We're getting it out. We're putting well, it we back are, yeah. in the upside down. Right. Okay. We're so getting it out of our sun and putting it back where it came from. 
We're so healthy. <laughs> anyway, Jonathan, Jonathan is losing it while his mom goes apeshit on his brother. Okay. <laughs> Turn up the heat. She's like, please, mother, stop strangling my brother. And she's like, no. Mother, the crab rangoon. <laughs> no, he killed Bob. Strangle him. Anyway. Burn him. Anyway, this is weird. It is weird. And it's kind of an interesting callback to season one when Joyce was in full denial mode while Jonathan yes. was trying to plan a funeral. Yes, so true. His dedication to his brother is unwavering, even if he's possessed. Yeah, and even if it's it's interesting what is defined as in the best interest of Will. Joyce and Jonathan constantly thinking that they're acting in Will's best interest and nobody really like trying to understand Will's perspective of what's in Will's best interest. Right. And I have to say, re-examining this scene made me think about being the family member of an addict because Jonathan, unfortunately, in this scenario, would be the enabler. So true. Refusing to show tough love, even though it's the best thing for your loved one. So shout out to Joyce for having the courage to burn the shit out of her child, to yeah. bring her child back. Yep. But yeah, I, I feel like I kind of want to keep an eye out for that dynamic going forward. Yeah. Okay. Before we move on from season two, I just wanted to take a brief pause here because it feels like the right place to do it to talk about childhood emotional neglect and the fact that both of the buyer's boys are definitely victims of it. So childhood emotional neglect or CEN is a term which refers to a failure to attend to a child's emotional needs. I recently read psychologist Jonice Webb's book, Running on Empty, How to Overcome Childhood Emotional Neglect. It's a great book. So in the book, she describes the different types of parents who often unintentionally emotionally neglect their children. And one of these types of parents is referred to as a struggling parent. And these are the types of parents who are doing their best, but unfortunately their life struggles make it impossible for them to show up for their kids the way that they should. And some subcategories of the struggling parent would include depressed or grieving parent, parents who need to work long hours to make ends meet, parents dealing with a volatile relationship, or a parent caring for an ill or disabled loved mm. one. And Joyce Byers definitely would fall into the category of the struggling parent. And the reason I bring this up now is because, like I said, Jonathan went missing for five chapters. Okay, maybe four because of the lost sister in there, but still. And Joyce never asks about him. She never even mentions him that right. I remember. And he's what, like 16 or 17 years old in this season? Maybe not mm -hmm. even. He's, he's, he's still a child. And Joyce does not ask about him. He's missing for at least two nights. Yeah. Because they stay in the motel the one night and then they stay at Murray's the second night. So they're, he's gone for at least two nights and he never even connects with them. And this is not the first time that this kind of thing has happened. Jonathan does often disappear for days on end with no questions asked. And we see this happen in season one after Will goes missing. Joyce, Joyce just checks out and Jonathan is made to become the adult. Yeah. This also happens to Will for other reasons. Alongside Jonathan, Will has to deal with Joyce and Lonnie's relationship, their divorce, financial insecurity, Joyce working constantly, etc. And again, this is like parents who are trying their best, like we were talking about. I mean, like, it's, it's no fault of their own most of the time. But on her website, Dr. Webb, who wrote the book I talked about earlier, she wrote in a blog post about children of struggling parents, they may have a home, food on the table, clothing, and adequate education, but the problem is their parents are so busy fighting their own battles that they lack the energy, focus, or ability to notice what their child is feeling. 
The surprising thing about growing up with your feelings unseen is that it's impossible to grow up this way without feeling in some heartfelt and profound way that you as a child and a person are also unseen. She went on to discuss what these children might be like once they become adults as well. When they look back at their childhoods, they may remember how hard their parents worked or how much they suffered. Most have a warm empathy and awareness of what their parents went through to raise them. As children, many tried to ease their parents' load by cooking, cleaning, or taking care of younger siblings. But almost ubiquitous among children of struggling parents, and probably the saddest and most impactful, is the way that the emotionally neglected child of the struggling parent tries hard to have as few needs as possible as a way to reduce mm. the burden on his parents. Mm-hmm. And this makes me wonder about Will's constant choice to avoid telling his family members about what's going on. And uh, just another quote, according to Psychology Today, a traumatized child may, quote, hide feelings and needs, which can lead to self-devaluation. Which takes me back to Jonathan not investing in himself, too. Yes, exactly. Both of them don't feel that they that they deserve peace or deserve like a quote unquote normal childhood. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, again, not saying this makes Joyce a bad person or a bad parent, but it's hard. Like, and this is honestly a big reason that I myself am like afraid of ever having children because it's so easy to do something wrong, you know? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Being a parent no, is scary for sure. It is scary. Yeah. So that's season two between these two. All right. Let's talk about season two, Nancy and Mike. So. Season two, as we mentioned, even though I couldn't pinpoint it earlier, season two starts with Mike stealing money from Nancy's piggy bank to go to the arcade. She then proceeds to chase him down the stairs and into the street as he rides away on his bike. Do we think Nancy's and Mike's dynamic is more typical of siblings than Jonathan and Will's dynamic? Yeah. I personally do think so, right? I think so, too. This isn't to say that Jonathan and Will aren't playful, um, but Nancy and Mike are more similar to Erica and Lucas in this lightheartedness. Whereas when I was writing this, it kind of occurred to me that um, Billy and Max have a more similar dynamic to Jonathan and Will in that Jonathan and Billy are both parentified, charged with caring for their younger sibling. Obviously, Jonathan and Billy do very different things with this responsibility, but when you really evaluate Max and Billy and Jonathan and Will, there's a heaviness to their relationships that aren't present in Nancy, Mike, Lucas, Erica. Two pairs have endured trauma, like we've said a bunch, while the other two pairs really haven't that we know of. And I just think there's more space in the Nancy, Mike dynamic to act as siblings do. Yeah. The two spend, Nancy and Mike spend most of season two, again, hardly interacting they're both very much on their separate journeys i hadn't thought of this prior to us doing this episode but mike got his friend back and nancy didn't i don't think this amounts to anything as far as their dynamic is concerned but it's interesting to think of the resentment that could arise from something like that between nancy and mike as siblings and i imagine part of nancy's thirst for justice in season two stems from the lack of closure that she feels when it comes to barb so Hmm. obviously we know that it has a lot to do with um you know wanting to take down the lab but i also think there just wasn't closure there in the same way that will brought closure by coming back barb was just simply there was no body retrieved yeah so mike doesn't really have this lack of closure with will so i was thinking like how could this impact their dynamic as siblings could could nancy harbor some resentment for mike i don't know i don't think it's evident speaking of closure 
Mike spends most of season two dealing with his lack of closure about Elle. I think, as you mentioned, we've really shown Jonathan as able to divide his time between supporting Will and supporting Nancy. Season two, although we do go that period of time where Jonathan is off doing his own thing, we are shown him actively supporting Will several times leading up to his decision to go with Nancy. Yeah. We're never really shown Nancy extending any support to Mike, who is in season two, definitely acting out of sorts, having behavioral issues, etc. Nancy and Mike do not get a heart to heart moment in season two. And I'd really like to have seen that happen because, again, like I said about season one, they're often going through very similar things and they just don't address it between them. We could argue, though, that Nancy never felt responsible for comforting Mike. Yeah. Or like we were saying earlier, they didn't have comforting modeled for them. That's just like not even a thing that they would even know to do. Yeah. And and again, I, I just think like I go back to Karen hugging Mike, you know, and then she hugs Nancy, too. And, you know, in the moment where she hugs Mike when they find Will's body, Nancy just kind of stands there. It's almost like Nancy is like, mom is being mom now, right? Like, I have, I'm allowing mom to be mom. Whereas Jonathan, you know, doesn't really need, doesn't know to allow Joyce to be mom. And when he ever does allow Joyce to be mom, uh, terrible shit happens. Right. No offense to Joyce. As I said, Mike and Nancy interact very little in the my in season two but they finally do come together in the mind flare after mike escapes hawkins national lab with will joyce and hopper following bob's death it is wild to say but nancy is present for jonathan's sake and mike just so happens to be there that's kind of the dynamic that i observed i'm not shitting on nancy okay but she is the older sibling so i think it would be sort of on her to extend support if there was going to be support happening, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily like jump on Mike for not going to Nancy. I think he would need that door opened by Nancy. Yeah. But this doesn't occur to Nancy to do. And like I said, this could be either an urge that she's resisting or an urge that she just simply does not have. I don't think it's an urge she's res- I mean, truthfully, we don't see a lot of warmth between her and Jonathan either. We don't. It seems like a Nancy problem. Yeah. Back to what you were saying, though, about that scene when they all finally converge at the buyer's house and Jonathan is literally caressing Will's forehead, right, and apologizing for not being there. And Nancy is standing over Jonathan as he's doing this. She's not hugging her little brother who just escaped from a giant government facility that was overrun with monsters. Right. I want to give Nancy permission to not support Jonathan. It feels like she is often, and I mean no offense to Jonathan, often supporting Jonathan in lieu of supporting Mike. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, again, in season one, when her and Jonathan leave, right? What about Mike? (laughs) Right. I've been with Eli for like almost a decade and we are engaged. And if there was, so sorry, if there's a choice between comforting him or my sister, it's my sister. Like I'm picking my sister. Yeah. There's just... There, there's no there's no replacement for that. So it, it's just, to me, so indicative of a relationship that was not fostered. Yeah. And I, I do think, too, like, there comes a point when it is reasonable to, like, determine who needs my support in this moment more. Right? Yeah. Because in this moment with Jonathan and Mike, 
they both probably needed Nancy's support. And she made a choice to support Jonathan instead of Mike. What makes the choice feel disproportionate is that she's been with Jonathan this whole time, has not seen Mike at all. Yes. Or, I don't know, it's not like Jonathan and Mike don't know each other. She could call Mike over. That too. That too. And Mike is just sitting at the table with Dustin, Lucas, and Max Mm. while Nancy is comforting Jonathan. I don't know. It just, it, it sat so weird with me to see this happening. Yeah. And it made me start to go back to some of the things that we were talking about with Nancy in our MBTI with her and Robin and the choices that the writers make for her. And we're going to get into it in a second. Another weird thing is that Mike is largely the mastermind behind this plan, right? He can't spy if he doesn't know where he is. That's Mm -hmm. Mike's quote. Um, And we never see anything between Nancy and Mike where Nancy is like, you're so goddamn smart, kid. Yeah. There's no, there's just no tenderness there. Like, good thinking. Yeah. We're, We're not even spared just a second. They couldn't just write any of that tenderness in for us it would have taken no time you know give the kid a a noogie i don't know do something also nancy not being with mike in the shed while they're talking to will about crayons and shit okay Mm -hmm. so they bring mike in there to like help will undergo his his exorcism nonsense right so it's it's mike a child yeah jonathan joyce and hopper where is nancy yeah so true good and mike gets very emotional like he has nobody to help him and this makes me feel like mike is largely treated as an adult like by not only his parents because in the same way that joyce never asks where her kids are except will karen and ted i would say are even more oblivious to where their children are at any given moment except holly yes but who i mean hopper's there right yeah hopper's an appropriate figure Joyce is an appropriate figure, but I just can't help but feel Nancy's absence in that that shed scene. Or just anybody to comfort this poor kid. Although I have to wonder, do you think Nancy's presence in that shed could have hindered Mike's ability to become emotional? I do think that. And I also had like just a practical thought of like, could her presence interfere at all with anything bigger? Like, as far as the mind flayer was concerned. Perhaps. But, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. Like, maybe Mike wouldn't have felt as comfortable being vulnerable if Nancy was there. Which, what does that say? Right. I would like to talk about how in the gate, Mike has an absolute meltdown when Eleven returns. And it's Hopper who hugs and holds him. The other weird thing, too, is that they give Nancy two heart-to-hearts with Steve in this span of time, right? Yeah. Where they where they're like looking to make amends. And then she proceeds again to leave Mike and go with Jonathan, Joyce and Will to Hopper's cabin. So, I'm feeling kind of again like we've reduced Nancy to her romantic pursuits. Like, yeah. She's never really given the opportunity to be affectionate with Mike, but she supports Jonathan endlessly and she's given two opportunities to make amends with Steve despite Mike being in the space. Yeah. Weird I'm not saying it is. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with supporting Jonathan and making amends with Steve, but there is a glaring gap here. And that is a relationship she should also be addressing. And that is her one with Mike. She gets mm-hmm. two Steves and zero Mikes. And it's weird to me. Maybe Mike isn't crying because 11 is leaving. Maybe he's crying because his sister is abandoning him. 
right. <laughs> I'm just being an asshole. No, but no, you're not. <laughs> it's just bizarre. And then I'm not shitting on Hopper either, right? Because I think Mike needed this support from Hopper in this moment. He is the father figure, and I think that's the role that he should be healthily occupying. Nancy yeah. is not Mike's mother any more than Jonathan is Will's father. But you wouldn't even know these two were related, no. Mike and Nancy. If you took any mention out of the show of, of them having the same last name or like them living in the same house, if you took that out, you would never know. If no. you did that for Jonathan and Will, you would know. Right. Easy, easily. Right. We don't even see Nancy and Mike hug. They, I watched it. I watched Bob die like three times because I was like, am I missing a hug here? They scoop them up from the lab, go to the buyers, and Nancy and Mike hug not one time. It's so weird. It is weird. So Amanda mentioned something to me yesterday that I had forgotten about. Um, and that's just like, you know, birth order psychology. So mm-hmm. are you the firstborn? Are you the middle child? Are you an only child? And Mike is the middle child, and he's actually our only middle child. Hmm. We only have three siblings in the case of the Wheelers. So I just looked up a quick definition of middle child syndrome. Middle child syndrome is the belief that middle children are excluded, ignored, or even outright neglected because of their birth order. And I don't know if I feel totally comfortable committing Mike to this 100%, but I do think it's interesting how it does kind of feel like Nancy ignores him. Yeah. As the oldest sibling. Karen yeah. does not ignore Mike. No. Ted arguably might ignore Mike. But I think he ignores all his children. Except Holly. Except Holly. Before I move on from season two, I just want to point out the absolutely wild group of people who attend Barb's funeral again. Because we definitely did this when we talked about this chapter. Nancy, Ted, and Karen. Not no, Mike. Mike. No. <laughs> no Mike. No Mike. He's no like, Mike. I didn't know her. Yeah. And that just, to me, really reinforces the disconnectedness. It reinforces to me, like, what these parents have done. Because even if I was going to be an asshole and be like, no, I'm not going. I didn't know her. My aunt would, she'd be like, "Uh, yeah, you're going. That's your sister's best friend, you idiot. Yeah, and I... I do know there, there, there can be conflicting viewpoints on the attendance allowing your child to attend a funeral. I have, I have seen that and heard that. But we do know that Will or uh, Mike did attend Will's funeral. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's that Karen and Ted have concerns about exposing Mike to being at a funeral. So the fact that three wheelers attended and Mike did not is just odd to me. Yeah, I would agree. And that's how I'm wrapping up season two. Okay, let's move on to season three. Well, in season three, Will and Jonathan are once again on kind of separate journeys. Uh, Yeah, kind of difficult to talk about their relationship until a little later in the season. But Jonathan is busy for the time being working at the Hawkins Post and Will touches his neck and asks to play D&D. That's kind of what they're doing. Contributions. Yeah. One of our main conflicts early in season three is between Nancy and Jonathan when Jonathan doesn't want to pursue the Mrs. Driscoll lead and investigate the rats. Wild sentence. That is a wild sentence. (laughs) We end up learning a lot more, though, about Nancy and Jonathan through this conflict. In chapter three, we see the erosion of Will's friendship with Mike and Lucas. They argue about growing up and how Will isn't ready, and this is when they find him destroying Castle Byers. And while Jonathan and Will are not together for this moment, I think it is very significant to their relationship. 
So as we were talking about earlier, Castle Byers is a big symbol in the show. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing it symbolizes is, like you said, a, a refuge, safety, that kind of thing. And it was Will's hideaway from the real world for a long time. And then during his time in the Upside Down, it was his literal safety from the Demogorgon. And it was also this thing that he built with Jonathan at a time when they were very vulnerable. So many emotions are are wrapped up in that structure. We've got anger and sadness and love and joy and guilt and protection. And there's just a lot. And there's, of course, many, many emotions wrapped up in tearing it down also. I also think, too, like... The fact that it is it is made of sticks and sheets is, like, also symbolic of its fragility. Mm-hmm. Like, how quickly can you destroy this safe, the safe thing that was created? Yeah. So once Nancy and Jonathan get fired, we hear Jonathan's main reason as to why he couldn't risk losing that job. And it, it's that he needs to contribute financially to the household. And Nancy refers to this as the, quote, Oliver Twist routine. Yikes. But to me, that maybe implies that he's done this before and that it's maybe not totally accurate, which also makes me wonder if this is self-imposed or not. Interesting. Like, how deep has Jonathan kind of gotten himself into this role? And does he now use it as an excuse? Yes. And we see more of that in season four when he uses this, like, I'm the man of the house thing Hmm. as like an excuse as to why he can't do something. Yeah. Which I did not realize or write down, but you've, you got me thinking. And then finally in the flayed, Jonathan and Nancy rejoin the kids once they figure out what the heck is going on. Um, Except then Jonathan and Nancy have to kill their old bosses in the form of a gigantic fleshy spider. So that's something. What is the show? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> but I really like writing sentences like that. That is just like a, an unsaid sentence in human history. Sure. <laughs> Bunch of other stuff happens. Then we get to the scene at the beginning of the bite where everyone bands together to fend off the skin spider and save Elle from its clutches. When they're waiting for its arrival in the cabin and shit is falling off the walls like this it's Jurassic Park style. This thing no, is coming. Is, it's scary. Yes, it is scary. Will says it's close. And I felt that. Thank you, Will. Remarkable. (laughs) Exactly. We're going to talk about Will's demeanor a little bit later. But anyway, the first move that the monster makes is straight towards Eleven, who is protecting Max and Will behind her. Like she puts up her arms and she's got those two behind her up against the wall. And Jonathan immediately jumps into action and he hatchets the tentacle violently. He does do that. Yes. He just hacks away at that thing so we see those protective instincts kick in even for his future little sister so that's kind of cute he does unfortunately get violently thrown up against the wall after that nancy then tries to save him from that tentacle but ultimately they have to be saved by 11 which like by the way everyone in this scene was like fight no flight no no we're gonna freeze (laughs) we will be freezing um, nobody's doing anything. Ella is fending off these tentacles alone. You're so um, right. Like all the all the rest of the kids are just like they're just standing there, <laughs> just watching. Which like I get it, but I would say Nancy, Jonathan, and Lucas are most engaged. Yes, and Elle, but Elle yes. doesn't count because she's a superhero. Yes, and I I can't imagine being in that predicament. But at the same time, this is not their first rodeo either. So anyway. Finally, we come in real hot uh, with Jonathan character building in the Battle of Starcourt because he's about to do some truly gross shit. Yeah, he thinks enough not only to go find the knife, okay, but then he thinks enough to sterilize it 
And then he thinks enough to give Elle something to bite down on so she doesn't break her own teeth. And that's kind so of amazing. True. Right? And he speaks to her so kindly in this moment. He comes up to her and he goes, Elle, this is going to hurt like hell, okay? Oh, my God. Jonathan. Yeah. And then the rest of that scene happens, which I don't need to discuss. We all know how disgusting it is. <laughs> yeah. It's so, so gross. So disgusting. But that is some... Thank you for that visual, Marina. Thank you. You know, I don't need to describe what she's doing. Anyway. But yeah, I, this is just like impressive on the part it of is. Jonathan to be able to jump into action like this. And we see so more, true. more action from Jonathan in season four is coming. I want to talk about the scene of Joyce saying goodbye to Will before these groups go off in their separate directions. First of all, I want to mention the subtle parentification that we see in this scene. Will kind of points out this role reversal while they're talking and he says i'm not worried about me mom i'm worried about you Mm. which is like okay it's fine to worry about your parents every now and again but i struggle with joyce's reaction to this once will says that she like hugs will super tight like holds him really close just loves on him in fact he says mom you're strangling me but it almost seems like a reward for will worrying about her and i didn't Hmm. like that you know, okay. it yeah, felt like she, it. Was, she was like rewarding this behavior of like, oh, my God, you're looking out for your, your mother. Whatever. I didn't like it. We don't see it as often. But Joyce definitely does rely on Will for a lot of her emotional stability, just I think in a different way than she does on Jonathan. Yeah. Like, and I think that's evident in her. Um, I mean, I think this would be any parent's reaction, but in her absolute season one, tr- like the way that she in the same way that I asked, would Nancy react to Mike's disappearance in the way that Jonathan did? Would Joyce have reacted to Jonathan's disappearance in the way that she reacted to Will's? Obviously not, because he's disappeared for several chapters. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't say shit, so he actually did disappear multiple times. Case in literal point. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention about this moment is that we never even see her interact with Jonathan. Once she and Hopper and Murray show up at the mall, we do not see a single interaction between Joyce and Jonathan. I, I watched it. There's no interaction. While she's hugging Will, Jonathan and Nancy are speaking with Murray about the keys and how to get into Murray's house. Yep. Which makes sense. Like, I know they, they're kind of the adults in this situation. They're the ones who need the instructions. Joyce does not say goodbye to Jonathan. She does not hug him. She doesn't even acknowledge him. He walks away, does not even look behind him. Which, doing this kind of made me realize that I think Jonathan might have some resentment towards his mom. Oh, uh, yeah. Hello? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, it never really occurred to me, but, like, until doing this episode. But it makes me wonder if sometimes he feels that way about Will. Which, like, I don't think he fully does. And even if he does, I don't think he'd ever take it out on Will because he's logical enough to know it's not Will's fault that he's in this predicament. Unlike Billy. Yes, unlike Billy. The yeah wow what foils we have such foils Reynolds rap over here John John Alon, John Alon and <laughs> Billiam exactly <laughs> but yeah th- I I think he really loves his mother and I think that in a way he feels sorry for her Jonathan Mo- yes I think Jonathan feels sorry for Joyce in a lot of ways which I think motivates a lot of his I don't know I just I think I think there's definitely resentment there. So I talked about this a little bit earlier. In the next few scenes, it struck me how detached Will is from everything that is going on. Mm-hmm. Jonathan is all over the place. He's helping push the car. He's pulling the cable out. He he had the idea to get the cable out of the car, actually. And Will is just standing there. 
He does not help push the car. He, he's just standing next to Elle. He doesn't do a thing. Good for fucking him. Right? Honestly, like he really, he, 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 no, he deserves a break. One expectation should be, should be had of this child. Are you does, kidding me? You stand around idly by William Byers. <laughs> yes. Fra- Francis. Oh, okay. I like that. That's his middle name now. Anyway, we hear from Dr. Owens in season two about Will's PTSD diagnosis or that that's kind of what they think he's dealing with. It's still sort of new at the time. But in more recent years, there's been a distinction made between PTSD and complex PTSD or CPTSD. And the C or, you know, the complex part refers to a more prolonged ongoing trauma more than an acute event. Now, of course, Will had his acute events throughout the years, but it also can be invoked through, you know, years and years of parents fighting in the home or like financial instability or things like that. So these things can cause CPTSD. And according to priorygroup.com, individuals with CPTSD may display hypo arousal, which is feeling numb or cut off, feeling detached from others, dissociating, feeling flat or empty. It may also manifest as relationship issues, flashbacks or nightmares, avoidance of speaking about or going to places where traumatic events happened. Sounds like William. It does. And I think we see him attempt to express himself emotionally in season three to one person in particular is he's kind of rejected by Mike and then he has an emotional outburst. And then I think from that he does go kind of flat. Yes. Yeah, after after destroying Castle Byers, we don't see much of Will anymore. It's more just he's here, and that's that's really it. Then once our Griswold family in the mall breaks off into two groups, luckily Jonathan and Will are in the same one. They do split off again when it's time to throw the fireworks, though. Steve, Robin, Nancy, Jonathan, and Will and Lucas are the, the three pairs that are throwing fireworks at the Mind Flare. And meanwhile, Mike and Max are in a back room knocked out. Finally, at the end of the chapter, we do see Joyce and Will reunite, and that's it. We don't see Joyce and Jonathan reunite. We don't see Joyce comfort Elle in any way. No, no. So let's grab a quote from one of our favorites, tvtropes.org. Occasionally, parents will have a child that naturally requires more care and attention than the others because they're very young, disabled, or psychologically damaged. This, This will still seem unfair to the other kids who get less of their parents' time, but it's usually a necessity rather than favoritism. The favorite will either be spoiled or throw and throw a tantrum if they don't get their own way, feel that they were a sort of experimental child and develop insecurities, or be a nervous wreck who permanently fears that they won't meet their parents' expectations. Kids at the bottom of the pecking order will usually be bitter and cynical about relationships and family life. Sam knows fucking cul-de-sacs. No cul-de-sacs for me. (laughs) Or have serious self-esteem issues leading to self-deprecation or clinginess as a way to compensate. Interesting. Yeah. So Will is definitely the favorite. And and I don't think he wants to be. He does not want to be the favorite. No, he didn't ask that. No. But it just, I mean, that scene is like, it strikes me as so weird. Like, Joyce literally sees Will and says, oh, thank God. And runs to him. Beelines to Will. Jonathan is in the back of the ambulance sitting next to Nancy with a blanket on. I don't even think she sees Jonathan. And she does not give a single shit. Yeah. And I also, this just kind of took me back to season one again for a second where we hardly see Joyce acknowledge the pain that Jonathan must be experiencing as Will's brother. Yes. You know, it's yes. really so much about Joyce's pain. Yep. I, I talk more about this in season four for sure. Okay. 
the Battle of Starcourt, I thought that we had, you know, closed that chapter of our lives, but never. <laughs> no, never. It is, it is always open. <laughs> I pretty much watched, like, almost that whole chapter this morning I know. again. <laughs> <laughs> so season three, Nancy and Mike. Something that feels different to me about season three is that I feel like even though the age gap will always be what it is between the teens and the kids, they are slowly meeting in the middle as far as life stages are concerned. Hmm. They're all kind of now dating and it just they don't feel as much like children and teens we're really starting to just be teens i think by season three so i don't feel as strongly about nancy's and mike's lack of relationship in season three because i think i expect them to be standing more on their own in the scenes that they do share they feel more like actual equals like i'm not looking where where's nancy as much because it's like okay you know these two are kind of standing on their own at this point Mm -hmm. mike and nancy don't share a scene in season three until chapter five the flayed wow yep who even are these people don't know this is ridiculous it's ridiculous (laughs) it is i do think it's funny how in e pluribus unum right at the beginning after l flings the meat spider out of the window away from nancy jonathan runs to her right and mike just leaves he just leaves. He just <laughs> takes off down the hallway. He doesn't like go to his sister and be like, oh my God, you were just being pinned down by a giant meat man monster. <laughs> Mike just simply departs the facility. Not the meat man. The meat man monster. And Jonathan <laughs> runs to her. And I feel like if Jonathan was the one pinned, Will would have been like, coming the fuck through yeah and run to jonathan and vice versa and vice versa and mike just is like all right jonathan's got this and leaves he's out he's out he doesn't give a a a hoot but again Um, i think that that's just like so telling of the dynamic fostered in their home yep that like they're they're all islands they are or on the the less i think the less negative side is like a mom's got this yes you know like not feeling the need to step in right like they they have someone to rely on so the 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 instinct doesn't even occur to them that's what yeah that's why i keep going back to nancy and does she have the instinct and she rejects it or does she just simply not have the instinct because she was never in the situation where she needed to have that instinct right Right. like they were mike and nancy were not supplemental parents for one another so they don't it doesn't occur to them to be parents but i also don't think that you need to have been parentified to have an instinct as a sibling to run to the sibling right like that's my sister like i don't have to feel like your dad to go like i can just feel like your brother right but that doesn't exist between them right like for instance like you don't have blood siblings but like your sister-in-law you love her and you right. would you would you would assist if she was being attacked by a fleshy meat spider especially if she was the one who was pinned down and nobody else was in any imminent danger right there's nothing else going on no mike <laughs> michael just, yeah no one it's just yeah it's just biz- it's just bizarre like i'm not i can't even say that i'm criticizing it it's just it's just odd to watch yeah my favorite Nancy and Mike moment of season three is also in E Pluribus Unum when Mike accidentally professes his love for Eleven. Mm. And Nancy looks at him like, oh, 
And I think this is her realizing that he's kind of growing up. Um, and he's maybe fallen in love. And I just love the expression on her face. There's like a tenderness to it. I feel like her lips aren't smiling, but her eyes kind of are. And it just feels nice to see these two share what could arguably be an intimate moment, even if there are other people present. Yeah. And I just love that scene between them. In the bite, let's rehash this fight, okay, <laughs> from from this other angle. This is so Pretty fun. Cool, it's like, right? we're both stand, like we're standing in different parts of the room and watching different people. In the bite, we get the scene of Hopper's cabin under attack, as we know. Nancy uses her shotgun to defend Jonathan when the tentacle goes after him. Okay. Cause that's what it does. It goes right for Jonathan. And then L takes over until she's turned into a game of tug of war. Nancy reloads and Lucas kind of deals the final blow. And then we see Jonathan shielding Mike and will. Aww. And Nancy stands behind them, wielding the shotgun. And it's interesting that we see Nancy defend Jonathan directly. And then we see Jonathan directly defend mike and will we never see nancy do anything directly for mike yeah obviously she's instrumental in this with her shotgun that seems to just take unlimited ammo but it's just it's weird to watch her again come to jonathan's aid but not necessarily mike's and i really i really if there's one thing that i've taken away from this is that i want nancy and mike to have this moment in season five like i want like a an intense sibling moment for these two. Yeah. When everyone meets up again at Starcourt, Nancy and Mike stand next to each other. Okay. It's just, you know, they're just, they're standing <laughs> next, they're just standing there. Like on the balcony, I was like, oh, look, they're next to each other. This is, <laughs> they're so close. Like, can they stand to be that close to one another? They, I don't think they've stood this close for like a year and a half. No, they might burst into flame. Yeah. We were... So close to Nancy and Mike sharing a finale. But they once again become separated in the Battle of Starcourt. Mike winds up with Elle and Max. And Nancy and Jonathan end up with Lucas and Will and Steve and Robin tossing fireworks onto the Mind Flayer. So, Mm -hmm. again, so close. These two could have shared a finale. Similar to the end of Season 2 when they could have shared that finale. But then Nancy and Jonathan leave (laughs) with Joyce and Will... For some and reason. Mike is standing there with Steve yeah. as the bodyguard. Like, Nancy, how often does Nancy pawn Mike off on Steve? I know. It's so <laughs> strange. Like, you got this. I'm like, thank you, ex-boyfriend. Imagine calling up your ex-boyfriend to babysit your younger sibling all the time. It's, it's just weird. To, it's weird to watch. It is. I will say, though. When our meaty best friend comes <laughs> dropping in from the ceiling in just Ew. the most beautiful scene, Mike calls to Nancy. He says, Nancy! He doesn't scream for Elle. He doesn't scream for Max. He doesn't scream for Will. He actually screams for his sister. Mm. One time. One time. One time. And I just, I, I remember like yesterday when I was rewatching the scene, I was like, does he yell for Nancy here? And he does. I was like, Finally, these two have stood next to each other. There's a lot of progress being made here. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about the the ending scene here in the parking lot of Starcourt from the perspective of Joyce running to Will and Jonathan sitting in an ambulance, okay, mm-hmm. with Nancy, okay? Yes. While her brother 
sits in a completely different ambulance. Mike and Nancy do not share an ambulance at the end of the Battle of Starcourt. Once again, Nancy is with Jonathan. (laughs) So weird. It is bizarre. Mike is in a completely separate vehicle. It's really as if the choices were made to just completely illustrate how separate these two are from one another. Yeah. When the buyers leave and Nancy and Mike are both actively losing someone they love, they just stand next to each other. American Gothic style. Okay. (laughs) They don't touch each other. Nancy has her arms crossed. Will or Mike looks like he, he is like out of his actual mind. Yeah. And they just stand next to each other. And to me, this would have been a perfect opportunity for some level of affection to occur Mm. between Nancy and Mike. Nancy's losing her boyfriend. Mike's losing his best friend. And they just stand there they don't hug they don't touch they do not a damn thing yeah and that's it for season three all right let's get into season four so things get a little different in season four because we're adding another sibling into the mix here <laughs> so um, true. we talked about this a little bit and we do get to see a little more sibling dynamic with will and l but it's definitely tinged with some other feelings for sure so L will come up a couple times, but we're still going to just focus on on Will and Jonathan, Holly style, okay? She's going to be the third sibling. <laughs> so we see at the beginning of the season that Will and Jonathan have definitely grown apart. They have both sunk themselves into their hobbies. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Will is very focused on Mike um, and painting, and Jonathan is very focused on Nancy and weed. So that's great for them. During the dinner scene in The Monster and the Superhero, Will is very over Jonathan's behavior. He is, he is over him smoking weed. He is over him being high at the dinner table. And this is the first time we see Will express annoyance toward his brother in the whole series. It's true. And I'm sure you'll get into it. But like the root, what is the root of that annoyance? Where, what, where does it live? Like, yeah. Wh- so in Dear Billy, we do kind of see the tide begin to shift In Jonathan's character, he leads the charge in getting them out of the house, coming up with the plan to call Argyle, although it might have been motivated by Nancy, but still. Then we have a literal shootout in the buyer's house, which is absolutely wild. And Jonathan literally jumps into like the most action ever jumped into. So he immediately runs toward the sound of gunshots, which I needed to rewatch that scene to make sure of. But he does. And he tells Will and Mike to stay where they are. And he runs toward the sound of gunshots. Then throughout the gunfight, Jonathan does his best to shield the boys and he tries to protect himself too, which is great. And then we see this scene kind of continued into the Nina project with Jonathan, Will, and Mike in the backseat of the pizza van trying to save Agent Harmon as he's bleeding out. Jonathan yells at Argyle for being an idiot and he also tries his best to get information out of Harmon before he kicks it, which Mm -hmm. is kind of amazing. That's like very quick thinking on Jonathan's part. We can tell he has not been smoking for a while. Then he tells Argyle to go enjoy some purple palm tree delight in the van and shut the hell up, much to Will's irritation while they're like burying the body. But Jonathan catches some sass with Will in this scene, which I honestly never realized how contentious this exchange was. Mm -hmm. But Jonathan says, let's just get this done. And he bumps into Will with his shoulder. Like he actually like knocks him a little bit with like physically. Yeah. And I, I, I've never seen these two act like that before. It's almost a little bit like, 
you know, some of that bottled resentment. Like, I don't think Jonathan has ever really outwardly shown that he might resent Will in any way, but maybe some of that is bubbling up a bit. That's so true. I didn't really think about that, but I think that it's very possible that it's like resentment toward Joyce, but that's sort of coming out towards Will. And then there's also the resentment of like, I know it's not your fault, but we're in this insane scenario because of you. Because of you. And like, it's so again, similar to Billy in that where does Billy's resentment actually lie? Is Mm -hmm. it with Max or is Max just the safe target? Right. Like, could Jonathan take out his resentment on Joyce safely? I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, obviously, Joyce is no Neil, but still. Yeah. And then they have this, like, super contentious interaction. And then later, they decide to get the idea to, to visit Susie. And they have this kind of little little jokey moment where Will is like, turn around. And Jonathan's mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, God, no. So I love that because that is extremely siblings, like, Mm-hmm. that's that's siblings 101 like just calling each other out on some serious shit and then like an hour later just like messing around so i kind of love that for them in the dive jonathan mike and will and argyle are busy helping Susie find nina and then they are all actually absent from the massacre at hawkins lab all three of them are completely absent from that chapter so the Susie plot happens in the dive mm-hmm. and then nothing in the massacre at hawkins lab that's like nope that's like 112 minutes of material. Isn't that weird? I didn't didn't realize that until I, I went, because I was just like going one by one down the wiki yeah. page. And I got to the chapter of Massacre in Hawkins Lab. And one of the, the, the facts at the bottom says this is the only chapter where Mike does not appear. Wow. And, and all three of them don't appear at all. So then in the first few scenes of Papa, we get that iconic scene in the van with Will expressing his feelings to Mike through the analogy of Elle. And Jonathan, of course, picks up on all of this, which I think reinforces the bond that we know that Mm -hmm. these brothers have. And then later in the chapter is when the boys finally arrive in the van to save Eleven. And Will embraces Eleven and cries like such a real brother. And it, it made me tear up. Yeah. You know, just to see Will have that. I don't know. It just kind of reminded me of of jonathan's feelings towards will Mm -hmm. like it i don't know it kind of painted will as like a worried older brother in a way after everything that will has dealt with emotionally with l too yes right like it was just so sweet to see him like push all that aside and just love her and then finally in the piggyback we get that amazing scene between jonathan and will as they work on creating the sensory deprivation tank in the back of surfer boy pizza Jonathan starts the conversation with Will by reminding him of a time when they were little and Will got a Lego stuck up his nose. (laughs) And he just says it like out of the blue, which is kind of funny. Jonathan then goes on to take a bulk of the blame for the pair drifting apart over the past year. He admits how much he misses talking with Will and he reminds him that he's there for him and that nothing in the world could ever make Jonathan stop loving his brother. And of course... We as the audience know that this is Jonathan's way of telling Will that he accepts him no matter who he loves. And Will responds by telling Jonathan that he's there for him too. And this is such a beautiful and restorative moment, I think, in their relationship. I mean, we saw like a major rift between them in this season that we'd never really seen before. Mm-hmm. And now I, th- I think because of this, they kind of become closer than ever. I also feel like this was like a good leveling moment between them. I, I think it's kind of the first time they were well, Will wasn't totally honest, but I think it's one of the first times we see them be pretty vulnerable and honest with each other. Mm-hmm. 
since chapter, I don't know, chapter one of season two when they have the whole freak conversation. Yeah. Right? Like, I feel like this is, like, the most vulnerable we've seen them since then. And I also, again, want to take a moment to talk about Joyce as an emotionally neglectful parent. Only this time she was the grieving parent. So she's still falling under that struggling parent umbrella, Mm -hmm. I think, but she's more the grieving parent. Except she was unable to realize how much Will was struggling. This kid was struggling so bad with his identity and just, I don't, emotionally, I mean, obviously he has tons of like psychological things to work through. And Elle was literally being terrorized at school every single day. And Joyce was too busy with her own shit to notice. Not to mention Elle lost her dad for the second time, by the way. And you lost your high school crush, Joyce. Okay, so please calm down. And then, okay, to be fair, this was also Joyce's second rodeo with losing her high school crush, but valid. But still, she didn't realize that Will is struggling through, like, a serious crisis that, I mean, you know, unfortunately, many teenagers lose their lives to. And same with Elle. I mean, she's being bullied to hell. And also, it's no surprise, seeing it this way, that Joyce had no idea that Jonathan was smoking weed in their house every single day. Like, I remember watching the season and being like, how on earth does Joyce not realize what's going on? And now it's very clear to me how she doesn't realize what's going on because she's very wrapped up in this hopper business. Yeah, I mean, I will say I do think that it's it's hard to know. I feel like so often things are going on underneath a parent's, a parent's nose. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know our gut instinct is to be, how could the parent not know? And it's like, at what point is there a shift in the responsibility of the parent to just know and the child to be actively disclosing? And I think when children enter adolescence, a shift occurs because parents are put into a situation where they would also be a bad parent if they didn't respect the privacy of their teen. Yes. So it does become partially on the teen now to disclose. And mm-hmm. I think that L was diligently hiding true what she had going on at school. True. I definitely agree with you just from like a a smell perspective. How does <laughs> Joyce not know that Jonathan is smoking pot? Yeah. And then as for Will, I don't know if it's made apparent. And, and again, this I could be totally off here. I don't know how apparent it's made that Will is like actively struggling in season four. True. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, I think we can read between the lines of what we see going on with Will. But I think like from Joyce's perspective, I think Will actually appears to be flourishing for once he's painting he's active in a hobby he's attending school he seems to be getting more positive attention at school than l is yeah so i think i i i always go back to like what is a parent supposed to find out for themselves after a certain point and what is it expected that the child tells them and and can we be mad at joyce yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's a great point because I also recently read 
a uh, memoir written by the parent of one of the Columbine shooters. Mm -hmm. And it was, of course, very, very heavy to read. But it was really interesting hearing from her perspective as this child's mother. She had no idea. No idea. No idea. And and like, yeah, our first instinct, of course, was to say, how is that possible? How could you not know? But after reading her book, I mean, she has photos of him from days before going to prom and laughing and happy. And how could she know? And she she even said on the subject of like, you know, giving kids privacy at one part in the book, she talked about how before this happened she would have been one of those parents who was like oh my god absolutely not you cannot invade your kids privacy don't read their diary Mm -hmm. and she said now like she if she could go back in time she would have ripped his room apart every day read his diary you know but like that's also not healthy either we'd be chastising her if she was doing that and nothing happened yeah and i think that both you and i probably as far as like podcast genres are concerned absorb a lot of true crime so so often I think of like most recently one of the ones that I listened to was on the Slender Man stabbings. Yes. And those children were 11, 12, 13 years old. And two of them, three of them had this planned for months. Wow. And the parents had no idea. Yeah. And especially, I mean, this doesn't apply to Stranger Things, but in the age of the internet, it's even yep. harder for parents to know. So oh my really, God. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not at the end yet, but my main takeaway in this episode is that being a parent is really, really hard. Yeah. And, and like, no part of this episode is meant to shame parents in any way. No. Like, if anything, I have the utmost respect for parents because that is something I will never choose for myself due to how difficult I yeah. know that it is. You're constantly put in the situation of making rock and hard place choices. Yes. Yes. And like, no matter what, right. No matter what you do, you're wrong. Yeah. Like if that mother had searched her room, her son's room every day, we'd be calling her crazy. Yeah. And, but since she didn't, people are like, she was an absent mother. You can't win. You also run the risk of losing your child's trust Mm -hmm. and like, you know, bring it back to Joyce here. She probably feels so guilty most of the time for what has happened to her family Yeah, that the last thing she wants to do is betray these kids' trust at this point yeah. and invade their privacy. It's, it's just you're, 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 you're stuck. You're just screwed all the time. <laughs> you're That's just absolutely screwed. <laughs> yes. I can't. <sighs> so anyway, let's wrap up season four. So... At the end of season four, Will is definitely not having a great time in Hawkins. You can tell by his voice, his actions. He's just, he is unsettled. And remember that thing we talked about, about avoiding the the traumatic place or avoiding talking about it and everything. Mm -hmm. So I think we see this happen in real time. Will is, I mean, in addition to the supernatural aspects of it, that he can feel Henry Vecna one more. I think there's also the psychological aspect of it, that he's, he's back in the place where the trauma happened to him. Mm-hmm. And then when Joyce and Hopper return, we see maybe for the first time ever Joyce hug both of her sons at the yes. same time. And it's very yep. sweet. And then by the end of the season, we see Will and Jonathan go through some of the most traumatic shit that they ever have. They go through a gunfight, burying a body, watching mm-hmm. Elle kill a bunch of people, dragging down a helicopter, an explosion, watching Brenner die in the desert. It's a lot. So I just wanted to mention these. You might have heard us talk about this test before, the ACEs test. ACEs or ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. 
And these are traumatic events during childhood known to affect health and well-being across the lifespan. So I'm just interested to see how even further this trauma kind of worms its way into season five. Mm. For season four, Nancy and Mike, the first thing I want to say is that these two aren't even in the same state for this entire season. <laughs> That's so, so true. This is like very similar, I think, to Jonathan and Will in season one. It's like they're kind of just not even together at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard. And, you know, you mentioning extensively how Mike is part of the California dynamic. Who's Mike's brother in season four? It's Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Like, let, let's just be honest here. So we do see Mike and Nancy interact very minimally in the Hellfire Club. But that's quite literally it back to the lightheartedness that is allowed to exist in their relationship i think we see that illustrated again in the scene when she barges into his room when he's reading the letter from l and she's like you have 30 seconds or i'm leaving without you <laughs> although it may have been occurring previously if they weren't biking to school this is the first time we're made aware that nancy and mike are carpooling <laughs> So I kind of just wonder what they're saying to each other on this ride. Nothing. To school. Like, what, Silence. what, are, they, what are they talking about? I wonder um, the same thing about Elle and Joyce's drive to California in the U-Haul. Yeah, like, what did, you, what did you say? For that, like, eight-hour drive, what was going uh, on in there? It's a great question. But also, I think this is kind of the first time that it's maybe implied that Karen was like, Nancy, take your brother to school. You know, like, Nancy has now been given a mic responsibility for the first time that we're made aware of. Yeah. Which, you know, it's funny because she could have always been driving him to school. Because it's not yeah. like the middle and the high school are far from each other. <laughs> no, they are on the same campus. And she's been driving, I think, for the whole time we've seen her in this right. show. That also makes me wonder about Karen's perceived closeness between these two. Huh. Like, what does Karen see existing between Mike and Nancy? Because they, they do spend a lot of time together as far as she's concerned. Like, yes. you know, when they're off saving the world, they're together. Back to parents not always knowing what's up. Like, they right. probably appear to be a team. Yes. But what's really happening is they're standing on opposite sides of the room 99% of the time. Right. And Nancy's <laughs> there for Jonathan and Mike is there for Elle. Yep. Or Will. Mm -hmm. Then Mike asks Nancy to join the Hellfire Club. <laughs> So in a moment of desperation it's adorable i love that scene and then these two don't interact until the piggyback but also barely so nancy and mike share like three scenes in season four and i'm gonna cut right to the end here because there's not a whole lot to say yeah <laughs> I mean, when they finally reunite karen runs for mike and they hug and nancy and jonathan hug and nancy and mike do not hug nope okay Mike was just on a road trip. She has not seen her brother in probably a week. And they do not hug when this reuniting occurs. I'd like to point out the look on Mike's face when Karen is like, you are never going on vacation again. In fact, you can forget about college. Mike looks pleased by this. He looks like, oh, wow, mom. Okay. Like, he's getting some much-needed attention. I don't know. Yeah, it, he's, like, tickled by this. Like, he that someone is. would notice his absence and care that much. Right. And also, Mike doesn't uh, reciprocate, right? He's not like, Mom, I was so worried about you. In no. the same way that Will said that about Joyce 
in season three that you pointed out. So that Mm -hmm. did not occur. Mike does not feel emotionally responsible for his mother. Nancy and Mike do not hug when these groups reunite, as I said. But Nancy does tell Jonathan that she's glad that he was with Mike. (laughs) That's good. That's great. Wonderful stuff here. Why wouldn't you say... Why? Why? This reminds me of like a random... I say this all the time. She reminds me of a random line in the office when <laughs> Michael Scott says about Pam, I would never say this to her face, but she's a wonderful person and a gifted artist. And he's like, why okay. wouldn't you say that to her face? Okay. My next sentence is, I would love for her to say this to Mike. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad Jonathan was there with you. Right? Yes. Why does she say this to Jonathan about Mike, but she doesn't say it to Mike? She can't have him knowing that he care that she cares. She cares. And I do think, like, could some of the lack of interacting that we're seeing between Nancy and Mike just simply be, like, a result of we should assume that it's happening? But we've talked about this, too. Like, no, no, yeah. no. We should assume nothing. We're watching a show. The in-between moments right. don't exist. They're not like, real. As far as I'm concerned, Mike and Nancy haven't hugged in three years. Like, no. unless you're showing us them hugging, they're not hugging. Or talking about it or happening or in the past. Like, it didn't happen because it's not real. Nope. 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 And I mean, maybe, too, part of what was modeled for Nancy and Mike by Karen and Ted was a silent support, right? So I don't think we could take away from... Karen and Ted, that as silent as they might be in their support for one another, they are partners. So maybe, again, maybe that's what was modeled for Nancy and Mike is like, we're not being affectionate. We're really not even talking, but we Mm -hmm. are standing together and we are next to each other. And that is how we know to support one another. Maybe. It makes me feel like they understand their relationship or their parents' relationship to be almost like transactional. Sure. And I don't even mean just like like solely financial. Of course, that is an aspect of it. But like, you know, Ted provides stability. Ted provides financial stability. Yes. Uh, you know, like he's a figure there physically. Maybe he's not there emotionally, but he's mm-hmm. there physically. And he, you know, provides these very practical aspects to their family, which is great. It's like he and, he and Karen have like a symbiotic relationship, you know. She keeps the house clean and makes dinner and takes care of the kids and he provides the other stuff. And yeah, they're fine with that. Sure. There's this scene in Mad Men when one of the copywriters goes up to the creative director and is like, you never say thank you. And he's like, that's what the money that we pay you is for. Oh, and that just kind of reminds me a little bit of that. It's like Ted isn't providing the emotional support here. Okay. He's making it possible to live in the house. Exactly. Yes. Now, I just had a question because I wasn't sure. Do we get a moment in season four when Nancy or Mike acknowledge the other's existence? Like, I hope Nancy's okay in Hawkins. Or, like, I hope Mike's okay in California. I don't think so. We've covered chapters one through five of season four, and this has not yet occurred. Yeah, I really don't think so. I remember Jonathan saying when... Agent Stinson is explaining what's going on in Hawkins. I remember Jonathan saying Nancy's in Hawkins. And Mike says, my family's in Hawkins. Like, I do remember that happening. Yeah. yeah. Because he's like, I, I, need, I need to go home. And she's yeah. like, absolutely not. And he's like, my family is there. But there's no, like, I mean, again, I could be wrong. We haven't done chapters six through nine. We haven't gotten there yet. Yes. 
But I just, I don't recall Nancy being like, oh my God, Mike. Or, and Mike being like, oh my God, Nancy. Yeah. And it brings me back to season one when Nancy finally like realizes that what Mike is doing and everything. And she's like, I was so worried about you. And he's like, you were? Yeah. So I almost feel like it's like, uh, she tried it once it didn't go well <laughs> and then she just never tried and it she was like never mind <laughs> like it's just not their relationship i know i think where i struggle with that explanation though for nancy and mike is the fact that these two have repeatedly been in life-threatening situations yes. and even that doesn't bring out the love and affection you would think so like that's why i'm saying season five we need a moment like this I also stand by the question, just to wrap up season four, Nancy and Mike, if Mike was going to California anyway, wouldn't it have made sense for Nancy to also go to California? And she just simply does not. Yeah. So I think that's kind of how I'm defining Nancy and Mike is that they simply just do not. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. They just don't. Like the opportunities present themselves and they are never taken not interested who is that kid unsubscribe yeah well for final takeaways for me i am truly surprised by how disappointed this made me in joyce (laughs) oh poor joyce (laughs) and like again i don't i i don't fault her for a lot of this like obviously she was going through a lot of her own shit but that doesn't take away that there were a lot of times where she was much more invested in her own emotions and stuff than the needs of her boys and Mm -hmm. so this also made me appreciate jonathan a lot more i think i'm I'm, yeah i think i'm becoming a jonathan stan like (laughs) i love him i also just really hope that will and jonathan can kind of continue forging this bond in season five that they've built at the end of season four where they're rebuilding this trust between each other and i really hope that maybe they'll realize like the shitty hand that they were both dealt and try and conquer it together you know yeah so that's that's my takeaways. I think for Nancy and Mike, as I already said, what I want to see is, you know, you said continuing to forge. I would like Nancy and Mike to just simply start to forge something. <laughs> right. I, I need I don't know what I need, but I need a moment between them in season five where obviously not romantically, but that that they show passion for one another. Like mm-hmm. I need a Mike is in danger and Nancy runs in. Or I need an opposite. I need a Nancy in danger and Mike runs in. I want to see Nancy choose Mike over Steve or Jonathan. That's what I want to see for these two going forward. I would love to see them overcome this this emotional barrier that they just cannot seem to overcome. And as we've said a bunch of times, I do think this comes down to the relationship that was or was not fostered between them as children, for better or worse, you know? Mm-hmm. They clearly have the space to just exist as siblings. And Jonathan and Will are not afforded that space. Yeah, very true. You know what? Let's keep going. Do you want to just do Erica, Lucas, yeah, and Billy sh- and Max right now? Because let's I think that it. I have more time. In real in real time. Let's just start talking. <laughs> hope for the best. We were crazy to think that we could do this in one episode. <laughs> Marina was like, you know, why don't we split it? And I was like, are you sure? I don't even know what I'm going to say. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, I typed like three novels. All right. That was our first Stranger Sibs episode. Hey. Tell us what you thought. I hope I hope you liked it. I hope it lived up to your expectations. Same.
So if there's any other siblings that we forgot about that we are not going to do, please let us know because we would love to know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we tossed around doing like a bonus L and Kali, which I think maybe we could explore that. But who else is there? I would think we would need Kali to come back in season five sure. to give us more content. To justify know? that. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, maybe there's someone we forgot. Let us know. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening to our Thanks. first Stranger Sibs episode. Thank you. We will we will have our second one next week. We're going to talk about Billy and Max and Lucas and Erica. And next week, Amanda gets the fun one and I get the scary one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no trauma for me. <laughs> you had enough of that this yeah. week. I'll take that next week. It is funny how that worked out. Okay. Yeah, right? We didn't even do that on purpose. Anyway, till next week, everybody. Stay strange. Stay strange. To keep in touch and stay informed, join us on our StarCourt Study Hall Discord server and follow us on Instagram at StarCourt Study Hall.